Notes that we passed out last week, so if you brought those back with you, if you were here last week, if not, you'll need a set. And we'll be picking up on page nine in those notes. But welcome one and all. And this is our series, as you see on the screen and on the front cover of those notes, Identity Crisis, Who Does God Say I I Really Am? And at the beginning of the series, four weeks ago, we said that in order to answer any question accurately, and certainly a question about our identity, then we need to start at the beginning. And starting at the beginning is always starting with God. So as we search for our identity, the only way we're going to see the problems that we have with that or anything else is as they relate to God. And the only way we will see the solutions as well is as they relate to God. So in the opening session, we were reminded that we did not start out, we being humanity, did not start out with a problem regarding our identity. We knew perfectly clearly who we are and who we were made to be because in creation, God made us in His image. And so when God first spoke to the first human, that human did not have to ask, who are you? That human did not have to ask for credentials. Adam understood God immediately. The reason he understood God immediately is because he was made to receive God's revelation. Having been made in the image of God, we are revelation receivers. We're made to communicate, receive God's communication. We're also, Genesis chapter 2, we're to subdue God's creation and and work it and care for it on God's behalf as His caretakers. And so we are not only revelation receivers, but we also interpret God's world. And we're to interpret it through a God-centered lens. So when we were first created, we had no problem. We're made in the image of God. We understood God. We understood who He was, who we were in relation to Him. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, as Psalm 139 says. So in creation, God gave to humanity an orientation. And by an orientation, I mean He told us who He is, who we are, and what He expects from us. So there are three major aspects to God's redemptive story. It starts with creation. And creation is this orientation who God is, who we are, and what He expects from us. Now, if the story ended there, we all live happily ever after. But there is, of course, the next part of the story, and that is we didn't have a problem, but we developed a problem. And so there is the fall, Genesis chapter 3. And God had given a tree in the midst of the garden that He said you're not to eat of, and if you eat of it in that day, you'll surely die. In the earliest notes, and if you don't have those, if you've not been with us for the prior sessions, just email us or shoot a uh, text to uh, 97,000, CBC Connect to 97,000. Let us know you want the notes, we'll get those to you. But in those first sets of of notes, uh, we, we said that the reason that God placed that tree there was so that the creature would understand that the authority and the awesome authority that God had given to us as humanity in the dominion mandate to rule and subdue the earth on his behalf, understand that that awesome authority is still derivative authority. 
It's still delegated authority. It's still circumscribed authority. You don't have any authority except what I give you. That's what God's saying. And so, to remind you of that, don't eat. But of course, we know that the sad story, that we inverted the authority. We believed the tempter's lie that you will be like God. And so, disobeyed God in an attempt to be God ourselves. And so, the fall, creation, orientation, who we are, who God is, and what He expects from us. The fall, now disorientation. What our problem is. Three phases, orientation, disorientation, creation, fall. If God leaves it there, we're in a world of hurt. But thankfully, He doesn't do that. The third phase of God's plan for history is redemption. And redemption is what God is doing about it. And God introduces what he's doing about it very early on in the biblical story. Genesis chapter 3, after the fall and punishments are being meted out, and God says to the serpent, I am going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman, and then personifies that seed, says he is going to crush your head even though you will bruise his heel. So God is saying at that early stage, there's going to come a solution to the problem of sin, and I'm going to make it happen, but it's going to come through a member of the human race, through the seed of the woman. And so you have that first gospel, that first good news given in Genesis chapter 3. And then the story moves on. God begins to track the seed of the woman. He says the seed is going to come through a particular seed. You know, after God destroyed the world in Genesis chapter 9 with the, uh, 8 and 9 with the flood, you only have eight people that survive. You have three sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And God follows the line of Shem. And a Shemite named Abraham comes along. And Abraham's seed is chosen by God, not because Abraham's anything. As a matter of fact, do you know what Abraham was before God called him? He was a stone worshiper, an idolater. And God calls him out of Ur, modern-day Iraq. And he says in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless the earth through your seed. He gives a land, he gives a seed, he gives this promise to Abraham. Not because Abraham deserves it, but because a good God has this good redemptive plan. And it's through that line, through the line of Abraham that Isaac comes, and then Jacob comes, and then the 12 tribes come. And God says in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, one of those tribes in particular, the tribe of Judah, is going to be the one that's going to have the scepter and will rule. And indeed, that's the tribe through whom Jesus has come. And so God keeps track of the seed. And the seed comes to fruition in the Lord Jesus. That's God's plan of redemption. And God in Christ then is remaking, restoring, redeeming man, humanity for us to do and be what we were originally designed to be and to do. That's a reorientation. So creation is an orientation, who God is, who we are, what God expects from us. The fall into sin is disorientation. Everything becomes inverted, it becomes distorted. It's what our problem is. And then the third phase 
His redemption, reorientation, what God is doing about it, and that's centered on Jesus. Now, I want you to see that that's centered on Jesus, and then we will get to page 9, and we'll see the work of what Jesus did and how that affects us in a very practical way with regard to our identity. But if you have your Bible, look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and if you don't, you can just jot it down and take my word for it that I'm actually reading Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, the writer of Hebrews says, It is not to angels that he subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. Let me just stop there. There's a place where someone has testified. It's the way the writer of Hebrews sometimes talks. There's a place. And when you read what he quotes, the place is in the Old Testament. And in this case, the place is Psalm number 8. So there's a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Let me just stop there now. First, it's what is man, what is humanity, that you, God, are mindful of him. And then it says, the son of man that you care for him. And when it says the Son of Man there, I think many of us, I know I did for a very long time, immediately my mind would go to one of the titles that Jesus would often use for himself, the Son of Man. The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But when it says here, Son of Man, no, it's talking about humanity. It's not talking about, it's not talking about Jesus, it's talking about us. <laughs> what is humanity? And what are those who have the characteristics of humanity? That's what son of man means. You have the characteristics of humanity. That you care for him. You made humanity, verse 7, a little lower than the angels. You crowned him, that is humanity, us, with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. Now, when did he put everything under our feet? It's the stuff we've been talking about. Genesis chapter 1 Verse 28, the dominion mandate. You're to rule the earth on my behalf. You're going to be my vice regent for me. I made you that way. I crowned you with glory and honor. That's humanity. That's what you're supposed to do. And Psalm number 8 is talking about that. Just fascinating that God has made humanity that way with that kind of lofty position. Verse 8, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. You, Adam, you, humanity, you have full reign on my behalf. You'll do my work for me, under me. But then notice this phrase. The great, one of the great understatements in the entire Word of God. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. This is the way it was made. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. This is what it was supposed to be. Yet at present, it ain't happening. We don't see humanity ruling on God's behalf the way he was made to do. We don't see him subduing the earth and ruling it as God designed him to do. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. So what? You see right there in that passage, you've got the orientation, creation, 
what God made us like and what he made us to do. And then you've got the disorientation. It ain't happening. The fall. We're not ruling for God. We're doing our own thing. But thankfully, verse 9, you've got the reorientation as well. Because it says, we do not at present see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus. You don't see Adam. You don't see all of Adam's children. That would be us. All the little Adamites running around. You don't see us doing it. But here's the good news. We do see Jesus. And Jesus is described exactly the same way as us. He was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. We were crowned with glory. Remember that? But Jesus now is our representative. Adam was our representative. He messed up. So, you know, when we get to heaven, you guys have heard me say, and everybody says, you know, when I get to heaven, who's the first person I want to talk to? And, you know, Jesus, Paul, Moses. But I always say, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to say, hey, Adam, come here. <laughs> a few billion of us would like to have a word with you <laughs> in the celestial parking lot. <laughs> I think I'll have sanctified anger at that point, so I think we'll be, we'll be okay. But okay, what were you thinking, man? Okay, but anyway, there it is. So he was our representative, the first Adam. But now we have the last Adam in Jesus. He's made like we were originally made. He is, he's fully human. But he's given this so that, or it says because he suffered death. Now, why is Jesus the one who is now exalted to this place? And in verse 9, it says here's the reason, because he suffered death. Now, how does his suffering death qualify him to do this? Because in suffering death, he was passing the obedience test that the first Adam failed. He was sent by God the Father to die for his people. And he was tempted not to do that. We know Satan tempted him as he tempted the first Adam. Jesus passed the temptation. And throughout his entire life, he suffered and he experienced temptation he was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4 and verse 15. So he went through all of that, and he passed, he aced all the tests. And so in Philippians chapter 2, it tells us that we should have this same attitude that Christ Jesus had, verse 5. It says, though he were God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to but rather he was willing to make himself come in the form of a servant. And he was willing to empty himself on our behalf in becoming that servant. And in so doing, he's becoming obedient to God. And this is what it says, verse 8, Philippians chapter 2, obedient unto death, even death on the cross. So what it's saying is, Jesus comes, in obedience to the Father, he becomes man, crowned with a little lower than the angels, and he is crowned with this glory and honor that we were originally made to have because 
He went all the way to the point of tasting death in his obedience. Every act of his life, every thought, every word was all obedience, and it all culminated in his obedience on the cross. And because he was fully obedient, and that's what it means, because he suffered death, so now the grace of God, by the, gra- by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So he goes to the cross, and he dies on the cross as our representative now, instead of the first Adam. And he receives our sin payment so that now we can be restored to what we were originally made to be. Philippians chapter 2 says, he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Verse 9 says, therefore, because of that, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. That because he suffered death, now he is qualified because of the obedience that went with that to be the restored humanity that we were made to be. So, if you're going to get it back, what was lost? It's only going to be in relation to Jesus. You've got to be associated with Jesus. Right now, guess who you're associated with? The first Adam. Outside of Christ, everybody's associated with the first Adam. Child of the first Adam. And if you're going to be restored, you've got to become a child of the last Adam. And then attached to Jesus, now you are able to become what we were made to be. That's how we get our identity back. So our problem is in relation to God. But we'll only see that that's our problem if we are God-centered people. If we have a God-centered perspective, if we have a God-centered mindset. You'll only see that your problem is that. If you're not God-centered, then you'll, you'll look at your problems, including this identity problem. And you'll look at them through a narrow lens of what's going on in your life and who's causing you problems in your life and you know, what your circumstances are. But the way you're supposed to look at everything, the way we were made to look at everything, is we're supposed to look at it from a God-centered perspective. Where does God fit into this? And our problem with our identity is that we're not made, or not now, what we were made to be by God. And that's got to be restored. But you'll only see it if you're a God-centered person, have a God-centered perspective. The best thing you can do in your life, brothers and sisters, friends, is develop a God-centered perspective on everything. Look at everything through a Godward lens. What does God say? What's God doing? Who does God say that I am? What does God say my problem is? What does God say the solution is to these problems? Best thing you can do, best thing you can do for yourself, best thing you can do is you counsel people. You go, I don't counsel anybody. Yep, everybody does. Not formal, counsel. We all counsel. We all tell people the way we think the world works. We all have a cup of coffee with somebody. We all shoot the breeze. We're always counseling, always. Giving and receiving counsel. And you give counsel, give God-centered counsel. Remind people, where does God fit into this? Where does Jesus fit into this? What does he say? Best thing you can do for yourself, best thing you can do for the people you counsel, best thing you can do parents for your children. 
Talk about God. Consult God. So, turn to page nine. Oh, that's right, you already turned there. And we got to the bottom and the solution to the performance trap. The solution of the Bible, or the teaching of the Bible, excuse me, ought to be the source of our self-concept. The Bible has much to say about what man is and what man is worth. Two theological terms in particular should prevent us from falling into what we saw last week as the performance trap. Next week, we'll see the approval trap. But here's a fancy theological term, bottom of page 9, propitiation. 1 John 4, this is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. That's the word propitiation. An atoning sacrifice, a propitiation for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Page 10, we say propitiation means that righteous, that is just, wrath has been satisfied. Now let me stop there for a minute. Righteous or just wrath. So, you know, you, you come to church and you read the Bible, and if you come to a church that believes the Bible, and we're a Bible church, so go figure, we open the Bible. And, you know, our motto says we are the family of God built on the Word of God to the glory of God. So we're big on the Bible, big on the Word of God. And when you read, you come to a church like that, and you look into the book, and you see stuff about God being angry and, and wrath, you know, it's easy for you to say, and this is what lots of people do, you know, I don't need any of that. Where's, where's the love? You know, show me some love here, okay? But that passage in 1 John 4, the bottom of page 9, says this is how the love is shown. Because God is dealing with His wrath in love for us. That's what it's saying. But should God have wrath to begin with? Should God be angry at all? Well, let me ask you, isn't it the case that wrath is an aspect of justice? See, wrath, righteous anger, is what motivates you to make things right. And so the very reason that God sends His Son because He loves us is because He is righteously angry. God is a just God, a righteous God. Those are the same words, righteous and just in your Bible. And so God cares about justice. And wrath is an aspect of God's justice. If you don't have God's righteous anger, then you ain't going to get God's justice. So would you want to live in a universe ruled by a God who's indifferent to evil? None of us would. So when you read about the wrath, go, okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad the universe is actually ruled by a God who is wrathful at the right things. God's anger is always righteous, and He's always angry at the right things, things that He should be angry at. And so he takes action, and he takes that action, thanks be to God, in love. 1 John chapter 4 on the previous page. 
In fact, we get our sense of justice from the fact that we live in a universe that's permeated with justice because it's created by and ruled by a God who is just. Whenever people come and say to me, how could God do X, Y, or Z? And you've had that, right? How could a loving God allow whatever it is? Then what you should do, kindly, is say, hey, you seem indignant about that. You seem upset about that. You believe that's not right. And you know, it's a very good thing that you have a sense of right and a sense of wrong. But where did you get it? Why does everybody have it? Why does everybody universally believe, and, every, and we get angry when we see someone who is vulnerable, abuse? I mean, not the abuser, obviously. But we know, we all know, that it's wrong. We all know that it should be, that justice should be done. We live in a world permeated by a sense of justice because we live in God's world and He's a just God. So, top of page 10, propitiation means the righteous, just wrath of God has been satisfied. And Jesus turned aside God's wrath against our sin by dying on the cross. So that previous passage at the bottom of page 9 that says God shows His love to us this way by Christ being our atoning sacrifice, our propitiation, satisfying His wrath, God does a couple of things on the cross. Yes, He shows that He's a just God, and that's a good thing because He is angry at the right things, and so He's going to punish evil. But He also does it in the most loving way possible by taking it upon Himself. So you now don't have to pay the punishment. You don't have to pay the penalty because Christ has absorbed it. And in the cross, you see God's justice and God's love both together. All of God's anger, all of the wrath that we would ever deserve was poured out on Christ on the cross where he became, the Bible says, sin for us. That means there is no possibility that anyone who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ could ever suffer in the future under the wrath of God in hell. It's impossible. Because God's wrath has been poured out fully on Jesus. And that payment is fully applied to you when you come to Him. No chance that one who belongs to Jesus then could ever suffer God's wrath in hell. Praise be to God. And so Jesus says in John chapter 10, you can't be snatched out of my hand and you can't be snatched out of my Father's hand. You are doubly secure in my hand and in the Father's hand. So propitiation implies three things we say in the notes. That humanity is sinful and deserving of wrath. Deal with it. That's just the deal, Okay. God's wrath has been satisfied or turned aside by the death of Christ. Believers are no longer under the wrath of God. Jesus absorbed the full measure of God's wrath against believers. The fact that God loves believers is not due to anything we have done, solely because it is God's nature to love. 
It's not our worth. It's not that we perform and make ourselves lovable to God. God is love. And in fact, because of our sin, we are quite unlovable. But God loves the unlovely because it's His nature. There's nothing inherent in man that causes God to love us. We cannot boast that we've done anything to merit God's grace. So, performance is not and never was the basis for our worth. What is the basis of our worth? What God thinks of us. And remember what I said, that only matters to you, though, if you have a God-centered perspective. Parents, I always keep coming back to parents. Uh, parents, teach your kids that if people say things about them, if kids say things about them at school, you want to reinforce to them what God thinks about you is more important than what, than what anybody else in the entire universe thinks about you. And the more you reinforce that, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, but the more you reinforce that, you create a confident child. A child that knows who he or she is in Jesus. And so they don't look to other people for their worth. They don't succumb to the peer pressure because they don't care about it. They care about what God thinks as most important. Performance is not and never was the basis of our worth. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. We did nothing to earn or deserve it. And so our value before God is based on Christ's death, not our ability to perform. God loves us in spite of the fact that we're sinners deserving of that wrath and judgment. It's only because of the death of Christ that God does not pour out His wrath upon us. And so this removes any basis for pride. When we begin to think highly of ourselves, we need to remember that we have failed to meet the most important standard. So I ask you, friends, to evaluate what is the difference between you and a non-Christian? And be careful how you answer. You know, because you, you could, well, I walked an aisle when I was 12 or when I was 16 or whatever. Or I signed a card or I raised my hand at the evangelistic meeting or whatever it was. Do yourself a big favor and don't answer the question, what's the difference between you and a non-Christian by starting with something about you or something you did? Now, I understand why we say that. But the first thing out of your mouth when somebody asks you, what's the difference between you and a non-Christian is the grace of God. Alone. Because apart from the grace of God, guess what? You weren't raising that hand. You weren't walking that aisle. You weren't even in a place to hear that gospel. All of that stuff was orchestrated by God. He did it. He did the work on the cross. He did the work in your life to bring that to you. And he says over and over again, the reason I'm the one who orchestrates all of this is so that no one can boast. You know why he doesn't want anybody boasting? Because he desires and deserves the credit. So it removes the basis any basis for pride. If you have unsaved, non-Christian family, loved ones, and you're a Christian, cement this in your heart and in your mind. Because otherwise you will come off as 
the high and mighty Christian. And you need to be able to truthfully explain and heartfully explain, I'm no better than anybody. I'm no better than you. I'm no better than anybody else. It's only that God has been good to me in his grace. And he offers that to you. Propitiation and then a second theological term, justification. Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word justification is a legal term. It describes a guilty person being pronounced righteous by God the righteous judge. Though he's not actually innocent, the judge declares him to be so. In salvation, we're declared to be righteous. That is, we're given positive standing before God even though we're still unrighteous until we get to heaven. <laughs> in fact, in uh, Romans chapter 4, the chapter just before that one, Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, it says this. I'm quoting now. God justifies the ungodly. So you don't, get, you don't become godly and then get justified. It's the ungodly who God declares to be right before him even though they're ungodly. So you don't clean up your act and come to Jesus. You come to Jesus, he cleans up your act. He declares you to be righteous. Now, what does he declare you to be righteous on the basis of? Just like all of your sins are paid for because of the work of Christ, your righteousness is all because of that full life of obedience that I talked about earlier. That perfectly righteous life that Jesus lived. He lived the life that we were made to live. And God sees you now through that when you come to Christ and declares you to be something, in fact, you're not. <laughs> Jesus is. It's a positional idea, we say here. It describes our legal standing before God. It does not mean we live perfectly righteous lives, but that our standing with God is righteous. Although we are not righteous in practice, we are righteous in our status with God. That is, God has declared that believers are righteous positionally despite the fact that we are still sinners in practice or experientially. The word righteous means meeting the standard, filling all the obligations, a righteous yardstick. In fact, Leviticus talks about righteous weights and measures. And so what's a righteous weight? It's one that actually conforms to the standard of what a pound is or whatever the weight might be. A righteous yardstick measures up to the exact standard of 36 inches, no shorter, no longer. A righteous person fulfills all his obligations, meets all the standards that he's expected to meet. The righteousness, the righteousness believers receive is the righteousness of Christ that's credited to our account. And when we're united with Christ, we inherit the merit of his perfect life. In salvation, God's moral standard is met. We are justified. We're declared to be righteous. Therefore, Romans chapter 8, thanks be to God, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that comes, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It comes right after the end of Romans chapter 7. You all remember what was there? Paul, who wrote Romans, is saying, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the very things I do. 
And then he ends Romans 7, verse 25, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the next verse is, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, be honest about who you are. Be honest about your sin. Be willing to look in the mirror, James chapter 1 of the Word of God, and see where you fall short of God's standard. Repent, and you have this relationship with God so that you can do that, and He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so you have that kind of intimate relationship with God. Do that. Be honest with yourself. Do that regularly. But don't hang out in Romans 7. Thank God there's a Romans 8 after Romans 7. And too many Christian people are Romans 7 people. They're constantly navel-gazing, inspecting, and then it's just, I'm down, I'm just wretched, I can't believe how awful I am, what a, you know, okay, I got it, Paul got it, Paul wrote about it, you should see it. But then repair Thank God for what he's done for me in Jesus. Here's Romans 8 again, verse 30. Those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Now, you got three things there. He predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. And it says the language there is written intentionally to say those that got the first one got the second one. Those that were predestined were called. And those who were called, all of them are justified. And all of them that are justified are glorified. And glorified happens at the end, at the end of history. It's written in the past tense, and yet it hasn't even happened yet. Because that chain is so tight, it's as good as done, it can't be broken. If you're justified, if you have the righteousness of Christ, there's no chance that you will not be glorified. You will be. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? If I'm God-centered and Christ-centered in that way, then what do I care what everybody else says? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You're in your life and you're going, it's not, I don't understand why it's going the way it is and I don't like the way the circumstances are going. If you're in Jesus, look at the cross, look at his obedience, look at his righteousness, remember that it's all given to you graciously by him and then ask yourself, would that God who came and did that for me withhold any good thing from his child? And Paul's saying, of course not. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns Christ Jesus who died? More than that, was raised to life, showing God the Father's approval on his entire life and death, is at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. And all of this is so, Ephesians 1, that we could be to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has given freely in the one he loves. He's given us our, his grace freely in the one, you notice it's capitalized there, in Jesus. So, 
The only approval we need is from God. And through justification, every believer is approved. Because we are in Christ, we are just as acceptable to God as Jesus is. Yikes. We are considered to be perfect because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to us, not through anything we've done, but through believing in what He's done through faith. Our standing before God could not be any better than it is. My walk with God could be, should be, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, hopefully will be. But my standing with God cannot be any better than it is. Now again, this only matters if you're a God-centered person. If what God thinks is actually the most important thing to you. So it's not to suggest that we no longer sin or that God no longer cares that we sin. We still have to forsake and repent. But in a judicial sense, God has already dealt with our sin. And so nothing we do can change our state of acceptability with God. All saved people are accepted in the one he loves. This should solve our addiction to approval problem. Okay? So that's where we go, guys and gals, with our identity crisis. We go to the beginning. We go to God. We see ourselves, who we were made to be in relation to God, our problem in relation to God, the solution in relation to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow before him. Father, we thank you again for the blessing of this Lord's Day, the opportunity to be with your people and to praise you in song, to give back to you as portion of what you've entrusted to us, to pray to you, to read your word, to proclaim it. And now in this hour, Lord, to ponder and consider these implications of these grand truths of the gospel of Christ, that he has satisfied your righteous wrath. And we thank you that that wrath exists, that we live in a world that's designed for justice. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ was obedient even unto death. And so that righteous life that preceded his death is counted to us. The righteousness we were made by you to have, but we forfeited, we were given in Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to see ourselves always and at all times through the lens of who you are and what you have designed us to be and now what you are restoring us to be in Jesus. Go with us this week as we do that, and may our minds regularly repair to truths about who you are and our relationship with you because we are in Christ. Help us to be good ambassadors then, representing you well to those you bring into our circle of influence. Grant us safety, we ask. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.